This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program, and we're going to start out today's show on a sad note, for we have lost one of our own. That would be our aviation correspondent, Vladimir Zaravika, who passed away unexpectedly last week. All that knew him can attest to the fact that in real life, Vlado was a great guy. And hopefully, Radio Parallax listeners can attest to the fact that he was a great guest. He made six appearances on this program, and frankly, we're sorry it wasn't more like 26. And we will in our third segment today air for the first time on Radio Parallax a very good segment we did with him about a topic we'd been talking about recently on this program, flying large sums of money around. And no, unfortunately for us, Vlado had nothing to do with the billions of dollars missing from the airlifts of cash over to Iraq, at least as far as we know. But we are very much looking forward to bringing you um, that segment, which did air locally, but not on this program. We'll also be speaking with another guest we've had on more than once who was a good friend of Vlado. That would be comedian Michael O'Connell, who will also join us in our third segment today. And I would like to note that the shows we've been doing the last two weeks talking about uh, The Gary Webb saga and the new movie, Kill the Messenger, has really evoked quite a response from our listenership. So we will continue to look at those events today in our second segment with investigative journalist James Diogenio. We highly recommend his piece currently on consortiumnews.com titled Kill the Messenger, Rare Truth Telling. We also are doing our best to bring you Bob Perry, who is the host of consortiumnews.com and the man we re-aired the broadcast of two weeks ago from actually 10 years ago, wherein he told the story about how he, while working for AP, originally came upon the story of how the Contra War in Nicaragua was mixed up with drug running. We've got a lot to talk about, so without too much further ado, let's start the show in our usual fashion with On This Date in History. Our date in question is the 23rd of October. It was on October 23rd and 42 B.C. during the Roman Civil Wars that followed Julius Caesar's assassination that imperial forces crushed the Republican army of Marcus Junius Brutus at Philippi, after which Brutus killed himself. This then led to the power struggle between Mark Antony and Octavian. Since Octavian is better known to history as Caesar Augustus, I think you know how that one turned out. And it was on October 23rd in 1917 in Petrograd, where Bolshevik leader Vladimir Lenin prevailed during a secret 10-hour debate. The Bolshevik Central Committee then decided to prepare for the armed overthrow of the Russian government. And, uh, oh yeah, they succeeded, leading to three-quarters of a century of ham-fisted rule by the communists. Speaking of the communists, on October 23rd in 1941, Soviet official Georgi Zhukov assumed command of the Red Army in effort to stop the German advance into the heart of Russia. Zhukov would retain command throughout World War II, planning and executing virtually all major Soviet engagements. He too was successful, which is why you'll see a, uh, an equestrian statue of him just outside of Red Square if you go to Moscow. And at some point, dear listener, I think you should. 
Our quote today comes from U.S. writer Gene Kerr, who said, If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs, it's just possible you haven't grasped the situation. Our quip of the day comes from the legendary American humorist Ken Hubbard, who did note that now and then an innocent man is sent to the legislature. Our joke of the day comes from Seth Myers, who noted last week, This weekend, a man in Oregon who is an advocate for the open carry of firearms was robbed at gunpoint. The thief apparently made off with the man's entire argument. And our anecdote for today's show, which in fact is a phony one, being that it comes from David Letterman, but we're going to go with it anyway. Said Letterman, the Obamas celebrated their 22nd wedding anniversary. It was a quiet late night supper, just the Obamas and a couple of White House fence jumpers. And don't you wish it was true? Our good news of the week for today's program is the fact that Britain's parliament on October 13 voted 274 to 12 to recognize a Palestinian state. This comes on the heel of Sweden's move earlier this month to recognize the state of Palestine. It appears that Israel's misbehavior in Gaza is costing it politically, as it should. Apparently, Britain's Prime Minister, David Cameron, although he sided with Israel early in the Gaza war, denounced their post-war land grabs as utterly deplorable. And we have two stats of the day, first from the Sacramento News and Review's scorekeeper section, which notes that you have to be careful when you send your ballot back to Sacramento County in the next few weeks. Not only does it have to arrive by Election Day, it's going to cost 70 cents in postage because they weigh a little extra. Second stat, it's estimated that the software industry in Bangalore, which is India's Silicon Valley, loses $6 billion worth of productivity each year because its engineers are stuck in the city's notorious traffic. All right, let's take a leap into the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week this week for justice with the news that four former Blackwater security guards were convicted for the 2007 shootings of more than 30 Iraqis in Baghdad, an incident that inflamed anti-American sentiment around the world and was, ben- and was denounced by critics as an illustration of a war gone horribly wrong. Though the men claimed self-defense, federal prosecutors argued that they'd shown a grave indifference to the carnage their actions would cause. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for ethics, as taught in China anyway, apparently. With this news item, a worker installing lights outside the window of a high-rise in China got a rude surprise when a 10-year-old boy cut the line on his rappelling apparatus. The boy was annoyed that the worker was making noise while he was watching cartoons. He used a knife to slice through the rope, holding the worker aloft. The worker then clutched a single rope and dangled eight stories off the ground for 40 minutes until he was rescued. Reportedly, after being confronted by the police, the boy promised never to do it again. And it was an ugly week last week for school administrators, again, with the news that school officials in Atlanta made a kindergartner sign a safety contract pledging not to harm herself or others after she pointed a crayon at a classmate and said, pew, pew. 
The child's mother was furious that a minor was forced to sign a contract with adult language. Said the mother, my child said, what is suicide, mommy? This isn't right. She's five years old. And in some follow-up on last week's show, wherein we noted that in Texas they were closing abortion clinics, turned out that um, immediately afterward, the Supreme Court, in fact, blocked enforcement of that Texas abortion law, paving the way for the reopening of 13 abortion clinics in Texas. We will continue to follow that story. Oh, and here's some follow-up on uh, the FBI and the CIA. According to the New York Times last week, FBI Director James Comey said that the post-Snowden pendulum that had driven Apple and Google to offer fully encrypted cell phones had, quote, gone too far, unquote. Comey hinted that as a result, the administration might seek regulations and laws forcing companies to create a way for the government to unlock the phones, emails, and contacts stored on the phones. Noted the Times, Comey appeared to have few arguments for critics who have argued that any portal created for the FBI and the police could be exploited by the NSA or even Russian and Chinese intelligence agencies or criminals. And his position seemed to put him at odds with a White House advisory committee that recommended against any efforts to weaken commercial encryptation. I don't know, has somebody advised the FBI that they're a part of the executive branch? Because a lot of times they don't seem to be aware of that fact. And as we like to point out in this program, the big news stories often appear on page A8 or A9. And in fact, from page A8 of the Sacramento Bee, we have this item. Under the headline, CIA Torture Inquiry Skips Question of Official Blame. According to Jonathan Landay, Ali Watkins, and Marisa Taylor writing for the McClatchy Washington Bureau, a soon-to-be-released Senate report on the CIA doesn't assess the responsibility of former President George W. Bush or his top aides for any of the abuses of the agency's detention and interrogation program, thus avoiding a full public accounting of one of the darker chapters of the War on Terror. The piece. This report is not about the White House. It's not about the president. It's not about criminal liability. It's about the CIA's action or inactions, said a person familiar with the document who asked not to be further identified because the executive summary, the only part that will be made public, still is in the final stages of declassification. They know a little further on. As a result, the $40 million five-year inquiry passed up what may be the final opportunity to render any official verdict on the culpability of Bush Dick Cheney, and other senior officials for the program, in which suspected terrorists were abducted, sent to secret overseas prisons, and subjected to harsh interrogation techniques. That's better known to you and me as torture. And from A9, from the October 15th B, we have this. And this has to come from the Now You Tell Us file. Here's the headline. Arming rebels seldom works, CIA study reveals piece from Mark Mazzetti in the New York Times reprinted the beast said the Central Intelligence Agency has run guns to insurgencies across the world during its 67-year history from Angola to Nicaragua to Cuba. The continuing CIA efforts to train Syrian rebels is just the latest example of an American president becoming enticed by the prospect of using the spy agency to covertly arm and train rebel groups. An internal CIA study has found that it rarely works. You know, this is one where I'd like to read the entirety of the article, but we don't have time today. We do want to note what crap it's been lately to have Hillary Clinton and Leon Panetta second-guess Obama over his decision last year to not get more deeply involved in Syria, because it seems pretty clear to us that once we did 
get involved more deeply in Syria, just not with the uh, aggressive campaign that they were talking about at first with bombing. This has resulted in the destabilization of the Assad regime and led to ISIS taking over large parts of Syria. This in conjunction with the destabilized Iraq having much the same thing happen across the borders. The piece notes that now we're trying to tell the rebels, well, we don't want you to overthrow Assad. Not, now we'd like you to fight ISIS, if you don't mind. Which reminds you, Mr. McMillan, we need to get Ray McGovern on this program. The CIA is, is not a monolith. There's a lot of different ways to look at it. America, like any nation, does need intelligence to conduct foreign policy. We need something like a CIA to analyze data and make recommendations. What we may not need is a rogue agency conducting secret foreign policy moves involving paramilitary groups, secret wars, sometimes not very secret wars. I mean, the whole world knew that we were conducting a so-called secret war in Afghanistan. And as we pointed out a couple of weeks ago, the people in Southeast Asia certainly knew that there was a secret war being conducted against their countries. The people who didn't know about it were American citizens. And, and I'm pleased to note that uh, The Economist followed our lead in last week's issue in its obituary, talked about Fred Bronfman. Thanks to our tip from Melinda Welsh, we beat The Economist to that story slightly. But I would like to quote from their writing because, as usual, it's pretty good. Note of The Economist talking about Fred Bronfman's reporting on what was going on in Laos. Voices from the Plain of Jars was published in 1972. By then, President Nixon had admitted that America was at war in Laos, but not that it was targeting civilians. That was still denied outright by America's former ambassador to Laos. In front of a Senate committee to which Mr. Bronfman, too, gave evidence. The senators deferred to the ambassador, he noted, and his book, though it blew open the secret, did not sell. Few seemed to care how America's so-called democracy worked. The executive branch and corporate elites uniting to do what they liked and damn the consent of the governed. Mr. Bronfman decided to stoke the fire by starting Project Air War and the Indochina Resource Center, both aimed at ending the conflict, and did not rest until it was over. They closed by noting that the problem with the human race, Bronfman concluded, was that it blocked out pain. Uncomfortable facts, inconvenient truths, other people's suffering were all denied as long as possible. To which we add, thank God for investigative journalists who, despite that natural bias against what they do, continue to try and inform the public about what they should know about. All right, we have a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to go out a little bit early at this point. On the way out, I'd like to quote a humorous piece, which I think James Israel sent around, which asks, Are you concerned that Sharia law, the law of Islam, is being legislated here in America? Here are some of the tenets of Sharia law. Government based on religious doctrine. Women having fewer rights than men. Homosexuality, outlawed. Rejecting science in favor of religious doctrine. No separation of church and state. Religion taught in school. Abortion, illegal. Well, curiously, these are the same beliefs as the Republican Party. So apparently if you want to enact Sharia law in America, vote Republican. All right, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. When we come back, we're going to talk with... A legend of investigative journalism in his own right, James DiEugenio. Stay tuned. I know.
Oh, you deceived me, now here's a surprise.